So, I mean, I like all of our bulletin covers. I think they're, they're always great. This, in a way, uh, in a sense, is my favorite, but I, I kind of hate it. It's a pretty scary-looking cover. I want to wash my hands when I've touched this thing. But it really does capture, as so many do, uh, the essence of what this series is all about. We're looking at six lies from Satan. In truth, we could have looked at 666 and still not exposed every single one of them. John 8, 44 says this. When Satan lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So any lie that you care to name at all ultimately comes from Satan, and anything he says at all ultimately is a lie. And as well as the difficulty of picking just six of them to look at, because each lie is tangled up with so many other lies and often with a few truths woven in there as well for good measure, it's been very difficult for us to distill any of these lies into just one short sentence that really expresses clearly what they're all about. Another difficulty we face is that we are, in our own strength, hopelessly outgunned and outsmarted by this enemy. Ephesians 6 verse 12 says these words, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil. And so Ephesians 6 goes on to say that if we are to fight this powerful enemy with his powerful lies, we will need powerful weapons that are stronger than we are and stronger than he is with the sword of God, the word of Scripture, being the strongest and most important of all. Right here, this is where we find another difficulty. It's the sheer volume of Scripture from, from which to choose. When we drew up our shortlist of Bible verses for this series, Ben and I, our eyes went around in different directions. As we, we, how are we going to choose just four for each week? And we've sneaked about ten others into each of the sermons just for good measure. It's a, the great scale of, of, of what God says to combat these lies. It is itself part of the difficulty of a series like this. So please just think of this little series as, as a skirmish in what amounts to a far greater spiritual war that will rage on until Christ returns. That's all this is, an example of how Satan lies to us and an example of how to combat these lies. And the first lie that we're going to look at, it might not be the biggest or the most dangerous or the most controversial, but it is possibly, I think, the most important to expose right now. Lie number one. We just need to get back to normal. Is that your hope? We just need to get back to normal. Have you said something like this in recent months or been told this? When the pandemic is over, when the vaccine comes, when it gets warmer and we can do something outside again, then everything will be okay. Did you think that 2021 might be more normal than 2020? And if so, how's that working out for you? <laughs> Satan wants us to put all of our energy, our desire into getting back to normal. He wants us to view the past through rose-tinted glasses, 
And he wants us to believe that the old days were better than they really were. And from there, once you have this distorted view of the past, from there, anything that you encounter today is never going to measure up to this dream world. It's always going to be compared. Every experience you have right now is going to be compared to a lie. Ecclesiastes, you could turn to it with me. It's about two-thirds through the Old Testament, just after Psalms and Proverbs and some of those big books. So open it to the middle and move forward a couple, and, and there you are. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 10. It says, Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. You see, it's not even wise to ask the question. It's a stupid question to ask. Why is it unwise to ask why now is not as good as the good old days? What is going to happen to you that's so bad if you fixate on the past? Well, several things will happen to you. First, it will be impossible to satisfy you in the present. You're going to see all of the faults of today and only the glory of the past. And so you will grumble and you will stagnate. And when it comes to spiritual matters, as other people grow in their faith, you will be left behind in a past that never really existed. Many people have left churches because they're angry that the church has changed. Very few people have joined them because they're happy that they've stayed the same. Who is it that loves it when this happens? Who is pleased with that outcome? It's not Jesus. What else happens to you when you get fixated on the past? Well, second, if you get fixated on the past, you will fail to learn the lessons of today. So Ecclesiastes 7, verses 1, 2, 3, they say that actually hard times, difficult seasons like the one that we are in can be more instructive than easy ones. In fact, weirdly, in God's economy, they can even be beneficial. It says here, a death can be better than a birth. Not your own, but actually the bereavement of someone close to you. Mourning can be better than a feast. Sorrow can be better than a laugh. Not that any of these things is good. Every single one of these things is awful. But that you can learn a lot more about yourself from difficult times than you can when things are just normal. I received a very timely message yesterday morning from my healthcare provider, a company called Upunk. And they said, they said this, this is the quote from their email. Getting a vaccination will help get us all back to doing what we love. Here's a question. Did God love what you loved? Were you doing anything good? Were you unusually holy this time last year? Was that the high point in human society? January 2020, was that, was that as good as it got? Were we doing anything good a year ago? My concern is that we're just obsessed with, with getting back to normal. Did, did we bless the world unusually with all the freedom that we had? 
Was there great charismatic revival? Were there great healings? Did the church have a good reputation? Were we renowned for spreading the gospel this time last year? I think we've actually failed to learn anything at all from the difficult times that we've been through in recent months. And I think we're still thinking about the past. If our hope is just to get back doing what we loved, and what we loved was evil, then we really have a lot to learn yet. Third, we will miss the good things that God is providing now. So we're watching a TV series with the kids at the moment. It's called The Island. Uh, warning, it is a little bit rude at times, but it's a survival show. It's a great survival show. There's no gimmicks, there's no prizes, and no weird competitions and voting people off and drama or anything like that. There's no supplies. There's not even a film crew. They film their own show. And the aim is simple, not die. It's brilliant. You're on an island for uh, four weeks, maybe even six weeks in one series, and you just have to get through. And on the island, one of the things they do as they sit there and they're underpants eating half an eel is that they talk about their favorite meals back home and what they miss about being back home. And in the middle of one of these discussions about the kind of meals that they crave and wish that they could return to, a wild pig wanders into the camp. And to get warm, it walks up to the fire, slips on a log, and stumbles in, and practically tries to cook itself. And they're all sitting around going like, oh, I wish I had some cake. And my kids are screaming at the TV, eat the pig! <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's right there, right in front of you. Look what God has provided for you. But, of course, God might be providing something like that, something amazing for you right now. But when you fixate on the past and how you can't wait to get back to, to normal, you will not see what God is doing for you right now in front of your face. I just uh, received a letter this week encouraging the staff team here at church uh, about Christmas Eve. And uh, I see several of you were with us on Christmas Eve. You know that service where just a few people came and you were told where to sit? You know that one where you heard a second-hand sermon because the preacher was in quarantine and then we all drank from a plastic cup and were forced to stand outside in the mud, sang one song, and then we were sent home? You know that one? And uh, the person who wrote to me, they said, in all of their time in this church, and they're one of our uh, oldest members, they said this might be the best Christmas Eve that they've ever been to. I said, whoa, I just felt the, so blessed by that letter. And I, I thought, what a way to have a vision of what it is that God is doing in our midst. What, what, what kingdom vision that person has. And, uh, you know, I started to think, I've actually received more calls and emails and letters like that one in the last few months than I have in my entire ministry so far. What an intriguing thing to be going on. And I just wonder if you can see it yet. Can you see how, as every piece of sort of materially superior thing is stripped away from our life together as a church, something spiritually superior it is starting to emerge. I really do wonder if we need to get back to normal or if God might be doing a new thing right here, right now. So what happens if we get obsessed with the past? Well, number one, we become impossible to satisfy 
Number two, we fail to learn the lessons of today. Number three, we miss what God is doing right now. And each of these things has happened before in Scripture, only on a much bigger scale. So in Exodus, God's people, they escape slavery in Egypt, and they they start to travel through the desert. And, of course, there's suffering, but it is, objectively speaking, better. But in the desert, they start to romanticize the past. And it's not long before the food talk begins and the grumbling. And they say things like, ooh, we had leeks back in Egypt. Do you remember the leeks? Oh, yeah, those were good, weren't they? I mean, who likes leeks anyway? Oh, leeks. And then they were like, oh, we had cucumbers, we had melons. Well, that, what a weird combo that would be. And uh, Moses is like, yeah, weirdos. But you also lived under a death cult and had beatings seven days a week. You remember that? We romanticize the past. We just need to get back to normal, the Israelites say. While God rains down manna from heaven, the bread of heaven for them to eat. We just need to go back to the beatings. And established in Israel, they get itchy feet. They start to look around. They start to get jealous of the neighboring pagan countries around them and the normal of the countries around them. And they're warned if they hanker after these false gods and the normal of their neighbors that they will lose the protection of the Lord. They ignore him. They do. They're taken off into slavery again, this time in Babylon, where our psalm appointed for today picks up the story. They sat down and they wept as they remembered Zion. And when they finally get back, 70 years later, back to their home, back to the promised land, Ezra, chapter 3, verse 12, records that they do learn the lesson at last. And they repent of generations of sin. They start to rebuild the temple which had been destroyed by the invading forces 70 years before. And it's a high point. I mean, the Bible, you know the Bible's a roller coaster, especially the Old Testament of up, down, up, down. This is a high point in Ezra chapter 3 as they start to lay the foundations of a new temple. And there's this great celebration. I mean, it's better than Egypt. It's better than the desert. It's better than Babylon. They know it, and they celebrate, and the foundations are laid. But as they celebrate, there's this group of old guys just sort of sitting on the side, moaning, grumbling. And Ezra tells us that while most people celebrated and danced around, the old men who had seen the first house wept. Oh, it's not as good as the old one, they say. There's this great big party, and they're like, oh, why can't it be as good as it was in the old days? And Satan slides along to this group on the edge of the party and whispers in their ear, we just need to get back to normal. It's right here that we find the fourth point. When we fixate on the past, we fail to see what God plans for the future. See, the temple was never God's ultimate plan. You know, it was never the end of it. The temple was always meant to be temporary. All of them were always meant to be temporary. The temple pointed forward, ahead in time, to an ultimate temple, a greater temple, an everlasting temple to come. And that is Jesus. The priestly caste, the sacrifices, the whole function of the temple was was just temporary and always pointed ahead to Christ. Jesus 
is, of course, the ultimate presence of God, the ultimate atonement of God, the ultimate way to God, in fact, the only way to God. And in light of everything that the temple came to represent as a, as a meeting place with God, Jesus even describes himself as the temple. He says, if you knock down this building made of stones in three days, God will raise it again. He's referring to himself and his death and his resurrection. Not a temple made of stone, but a temple made of flesh and spirit. And I just think of those old blokes in Ezra, especially as I become one. I've only had a week and a half off work and all my hair's fallen off. Especially as I get older, I think of those guys and how easy it is to grumble. And I just think, if they could have lived 400 years, that little group on the side, if they could have lived 400 years or so, and still been there as Christ was born, what would they have thought when they met him? I wonder. Because he was born in a barn, and he ate with sinners, and he died like a criminal on a cross. And I wonder what they'd have done. I wonder if they'd have looked at Jesus and said, not as good as the old temple. I wonder if they would have been disappointed in Jesus because they believed a lie. We just need to get back to normal. There's not a lot normal about Jesus, you know. So when we get fixated on the past, we really fail to see what it is that God plans for our future. We see this in the gospel reading. Uh, you can look at it with me, or I'll just read it very briefly. It's Luke chapter 9. As they were going along the road, and you see that they're actually going somewhere, could it be any more obvious? It's an Avril Levine verse 4, as they're actually on a journey. Someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus is leading us a long way from normal. There is nothing normal about that promise from Jesus Christ. It's not a, a, a promise of, of comfort and ease. So why is it that we believe the lie? Well, because we want to. It's tailor-made to the desires of our hearts. We just need to get comfortable. We just need to get normal. We just need to get back to what we know, to the familiar, to the ease, to the simplicity, to, to, to things being our own way. The lie is tailor-made to our hearts. We need to get back to doing what we love. You can do anything you like. And Christians who buy into the lie ultimately start to look no different from their non-Christian friends. And the longer they believe the lie, the more likely it is that they will become their non-Christian friends. And then Satan wins them for himself. Then he's won them. Then they are his. When Satan wins them, he becomes their scripture. He becomes their authority, their guide. He becomes their vision. He becomes their history book. And he becomes their hope. He replaces the word of God with his own twisted word. And Satan wants us to long to get back to normal because when that becomes our desire, then, then he can become our God. When we believe this lie, we fail to learn from the past. We fail to see God's provision now. We fail to see God's plan for the future Far more importantly than all of those things, we fail to follow God into it. But our reading from Philippians chapter 3 says this. 
I'm just reading it for you. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. We do not need to get back to normal. We need to follow Jesus Christ into something entirely new. Amen.